Hi, I'm Robert McGinnis. I'm the driver of the number nine Palto Network Synchros Racing for Mazda car. And welcome to the Book and the Bird Show. Welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show. We are back. We apologize for last week. As we mentioned, uh, oh, two or three weeks ago, our weekends are fairly finely balanced right now. And last weekend, it toppled out of balance due to a rare hole in the weather and some, well, actually, it wasn't a hole at all. We still went, ended up in the rain. Um, but work needed to happen on the official 1970s era British sports car of the Bloke and the Bird Show. Um, and that was the only opportunity it could get done, and that unfortunately caused dominoes to fall. Well, yeah, but we had said that it was going to be really difficult for us to have a show last weekend. Also, um, we lost our normal recording time due to other things other than the yeah. 71 MGB, but everyone should be happy to know that she is about ready to go into her winter hibernation with a brand spanking new master cylinder um and the clutch operation which is now a new clutch a new slave a new master um is working much better so that was done while we were gone of course the big news is that formula one has a new five-time world champion and the question for everybody, and, and truly, you know, we'll know in after two more races, is was this the champion you predicted or not? I'm pretty sure it was the champion I predicted. Or in other terms, is this the, the F1 champion we needed or the F1 champion we deserved? It's both. Oh, okay. <laughs> um... So I just kind of put some context on this because I would be remiss to not copy every other F1 commentator out there. We need to remember that Lewis Hamilton making five-time world champion puts him exactly on the same level as Fangio, who Mm -hmm. did it in the 50s. By the way, Fangio entered F1, not that it existed for very much longer, before he entered F1, at 36. Yeah, that's really the big thing about Fangio. So let's just kind of remember that part. Um, Lewis isn't even as old as Fangio is and has got five times world champion. The only person who has ever won more championships than five is Michael Schumacher at seven. And there's a lot of talk right now that Lewis has got his eye on Michael's record. And, you know, I don't blame him. It's two years and... There's a lot of question about what the future looks like for Mercedes and their performance, especially after the fact that, I mean, let's admit it, Ferrari put forward a strong car. And we'll talk more about that in a bit. But they put forward a strong car, and this was arguably the biggest competition that Ferrari or that Mercedes has had in the turbo hybrid era. Well, keeping in mind, the Constructors isn't locked up yet. Correct. So there's that piece also still going on. 
the one thing I did want to call out was Lewis Hamilton, and every commentator has been saying this, so I'm not speaking just for me, that Lewis Hamilton has had a year of amazing drives. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's put the car that shouldn't have been, and by all like quantitative metrics, isn't truly the fastest car on the track this year. A Ferrari has had a faster car, but has had other issues. But he's put it on pole in places like Singapore that is traditionally not a Mercedes track. He's driven that car in an incredible way. So when we compare this to, I don't know, two years ago when Nico Rosberg won the title and we asked the question of did he win it or did Lewis lose it, we can honestly sit back this year and say Lewis won this title by driving impeccably. Vettel didn't win the title because Vettel made some critical mistakes. Mm-hmm. But That's the big thing. There. I don't know if Vettel lost it like as much as Lewis really was at the peak of his game. There's not been a season that he's driven as no, well as I, he has. No, I, I think Vettel has lost it. The, the, lost the title. He, he's still a good driver. He's still a solid driver. The reality was, though, when the pressure was truly on Seb in Hungary, in a couple of other occasions, he slept up. Yes, he had a fantastic drive, and he kept, I mean, it was flawless in Silverstone. You gotta hand Vettel, I mean, he did a fantastic job in Silverstone. He's done a fantastic job, but he hasn't been able to maintain it. And that's... that, and that's that's why I think you're right, and you say that in terms of who has had the better drives consistently through the course of the year, that is certainly Lewis and his world championship run. Well, and I think this is a very telling thing about Vettel. When Vettel won his four championships, they were in this like amazing car mm-hmm. that was driving amazingly, and. Vettel didn't have a whole lot of pressure. I mean, yes, Alonso was nipping at yeah, his I heels. Yeah, I mean, 2012, the, the, real, the, the, the truth was, again, going back to that first year that we watched Formula One, and it was such a tight race for so long. If you remember, Vettel had a, a solid car. Mm-hmm. He didn't necessarily have the best car. The Ferrari was not nearly as good, and that was where you know you truly saw how good Fernando Alonso was. But then you look at the McLarens, and the reality was the McLaren was the faster car. The McLaren was the better car that season, and the team shot themselves in the foot multiple times and handed the championship away fairly early in the season to Ferrari and Red Bull to fight over. Correct. So I, I wouldn't quite go so far as to say he's always had the best car. But I don't think that that he has had the type of consistent high-pressure challenge that he did this year. And I think that some of what we saw this year was a difference in Lewis has an uncanny, deep focus ability. He can walk in, get in that car, and the world goes away, and he can drive. And what I've saw from Vettel this year is he is 
very emotional. Well, we, we've known that before. And actually, in terms of what we saw this year compared to two years ago, he is much more reserved than he has been in the past. I mean, we, we are not seeing the angry Seb that we have seen in years past. So, yes, we know he's emotional. I wasn't talking about angry Seb or cussy Seb or any of those. I mean that he's an emotional driver. Yeah. That he allows the 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 pressure of what's going on around him to affect his drive and you just don't you, this year you have not seen that and we've said in past years that lewis is emotional lewis lets mm-hmm. things happen outside the world i mean remember all of the breakup problems but this year we watched him do all sorts of stuff off the track and show up and just lay down lap after lap of sheer perfection well I, I think some of that is lewis has figured out what the outlet needs to be because i don't think he has had less turmoil i think he's figured out the way to to release those pressures outside of formula one where before he didn't necessarily have that and that was causing the problem but the other thing that i think is very much worth pointing out is, yeah, you talk about how Vettel hasn't really had consistently this level of challenge before until this year. The truth is, Mercedes hasn't either. And we should not forget the fact that the first half of the season, when Ferrari was running as strong as it was and fighting as closely as it was with Mercedes, Mercedes had a string of really dumb and really poor strategic calls. And... We have seen that in the past from Mercedes, that when the pressure starts to ratchet up, their strategy starts to get a bit weak. I'm assuming that things have gotten better. <clears throat> We're not quite seeing Well, I don't as know. Be- I mean... Because the tire change call in Austin, I think, was a huge mistake on Mercedes' part. Yeah, okay, you're right. So Mercedes... Still, they they are still not the perfections of strategy that one would hope for of a top mm-hmm. team. Um, but I'm sure that debating whether or not Lewis is earned his championship versus Vettel losing it and throwing it away um, is not the topic you wanted to talk about for the entire show today. No, we're not going to do that. Um, sure enough, BBC has done that enough on Five Live last week. <laughs> Um, and I think a lot of the other various pundits and broadcasters did that enough. And we've got some other things that we need to catch up on. The first one, do you remember Santino Ferrucci? Do I remember him? Well, you remember there was him, this the stick. Haas F1 development driver guy? Yes, the one that had issues. Well, let's see. He... he 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 had his contract terminated. He was fired for intentionally driving into his teammate in the Formula One or the Formula Two championship, and was fined for driving with a phone in his hand, and didn't show up at the his, when he was called to the stewards because he said he sent an email that explained everything. Well, his former team took him and his father to court to sue them over breach of contract and damages and things of that nature. And uh, according to an order of payment that was issued through the Court of Milan, 
to Trident Racing, his former team, um, Santino Ferrucci and his family will need to pay the team 502,000 euros plus interest and additional legal fees. That works out to just over $575,000 in damages. Wow. Yeah. So now he's really, really looking for that IndyCar contract. Oh, my word. How grounded do you get when you have to have daddy pay that kind of money because you had a little temper fit on the track? I don't know. Maybe we should ask Lance Stroll. Ooh. <laughs> You're not going to let it go, are you? Oh, heck no. He, he's our modern-day Pastor Maldonado whipping boy. Oh. So, again, because we're still reeling over weekends being kind of tippy, and this past week we, we was a rough week in its own right, and we needed the day before to recover. I don't have pre-recorded results for fantasy. GP. I'm not in the lead anymore. Well, that was the, the most important thing, and, and, and we had to touch on it because the reality is the league has a new leader. It's not you. It's not me either. It's <laughs> Phil, who is up by four points coming out of Mexico. I'm looking at you, Phil. Gonna get you. Uh, Phil and I have been dancing with that one-two for a little bit now, so it's it's going to come down to Abu Dhabi. I know it. I just know it. And and the thing is, you know, we're we're two races out. We there's still a lot of room for things to move. And you know something, if Red Bull can't hand Daniel Ricciardo a car that make it that can make it to the end of the race, I'm just done. <laughs> I mean, that's really what's killing me is I got Daniel Ricardo, I got Red Bull, so that should be getting me big points. And you can't bet against Daniel Ricardo. You can't bet against the Honey Badger? No. I bet against the Honey Badger every week. My problem, though, is that <laughs> it's not like it's his fault. Yeah. That's no. the challenge here. That's that I mean, is he was on pole. Yeah, did not predict him to be on pole. I don't think anybody did. Um. <clears throat> yeah. So, in other Formula One news that's been going on over the last two weeks, you know, we're we're waiting to find out who will be sitting alongside Daniel Kvyat. Um, according to France Toast. They probably won't announce who that's going to be before December. Now, admittedly, December is now only about three weeks away, but we won't see anything before the end of the season as to who that will be. Okay. One of the things that we are expecting next year is further revisions to the arrow, specifically front wings. Okay. Um, with the hope of cutting front downforce to allow closer racing, to allow the cars to follow a bit closer. <clears throat> well, according to the latest prediction from the FIA, they're saying that the, t the cars should lose about one, or they should have about one-third less downforce compared to this year. We're looking at wider wings. We're looking at simpler wings on the front. Um, there's been a lot of question as to whether or not that's real. Okay. Why would there be question about whether or not that's real? Um, I think there's some belief that the wider wing 
will negate some of that. Wider wing? I said wider. And I watched you have to slow down to say. <laughs> I, I do. There's, there's too many W's this week. It, it's an issue. It's the W week. This week brought to you by the letter W. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so some of the folks who know car design are saying, yeah, this is not going to do what you think it's going to do. Um, nice try. And then there's others who are just upset because the wider wing will be not as attractive, they allege. You know something? I've heard this argument about the attracted attractiveness of a formula one car mm-hmm. and you know they go back to the v12 era and everything was perfect back then you remember that yeah. right mm-hmm. and they talk about how pretty the cars were and how you know awesome they are have you looked at those cars i don't, I don't like think them. that they're that attractive they're kind of pointy <clears throat> they're, they're they're kind of plain they're kind of pointy there's not a lot to them Honestly, I don't. I mean, I don't necessarily mind the fins and the wings, which is why when I look at the cars from like 2010, yeah, um, and around the time that Lewis won his first title with the extra wings and fins, I don't mind that. I think those look like cars that have been designed. Yeah, it's it's just it's funny to me. You know, everybody's view of what was the best era and what was the prettiest car. First and foremost, I don't really care what the car looks like. If it can go fast and it can pass and it can perform, that's when I care. But whether it has extra flappy bits or non-flappy bits or that kind of thing, I I still tell you that I think the coolest looking cars that we ever had in Formula One are some of the original cars. Because... The torpedo shapes? The torpedoes. Now, they wouldn't compete by today's standards. They aren't today's Formula One, but it's so classic and so let's sit on an engine and go fast. But, you know, they didn't have an issue with close racing. I mean, those were cars that were going into turns at Monaco, famously narrow Monaco, two and three across. Right, because the cars were a foot and a half across. Yeah. I mean— I mean, back then the drivers weren't going. Well, you know, the problem with this track is it's so hard to pass, and that no, that was there was none of that there. Oh no, and they weren't aero dependent because there was no wings <coughs> and there was no talk of like sucking it down to the ground and yeah. downforce and stuff like that. But and okay, granted, Jackie Stewart is rolling his eyes at me right now because I have to mention they were also not very safe. Well, um, in in a way though, that kind of makes you wonder. It you know if you took the modern design and resources and the things that folks have learned in the last 50 or so years and said, go forth and design a race car that is as close to modern safety standards as possible while conforming to the design aesthetic of the cars when Formula One first started, what you would get. It would be interesting because you wouldn't get the wings. There would be no front wing. Mm-hmm. There would be no back wing. So you'd have to take off that downforce part. But what I bet you'd see is those torpedoes were kind of flat in the front. I bet you'd see them tapered in so that they could cut through yeah. the air a little bit more. 
Um, you know, the guys would probably sit a little lower so that there'd be less bumps and stuff like that. But it would be a very interesting challenge. I, I think we should mention that to the Formula One group when we talk to them next. Okay, n- next time that, that we have a meeting with them, I'll make sure it's part of the agenda. Please do. A- along with um, better refreshments during the meeting, too, because I'm, I'm really sick of the, the, the cheapo donuts from the, the Roach Coach down the, down the road. Oh, is that where they came from? I thought they were day-old donuts from their meeting with Ferrari. That, that's possible, too. <laughs> anyway, speaking of the teams and the team bosses and Liberty. Um, and bad donuts? Pri- well, I don't know if there were bad donuts. We, we, we don't know what the food is like in a Mercedes motorhome. I bet it's so pretty good. The, the food in the – well, the Mercedes motorhome in general seems to be a more popular gathering place for team bosses. Let's put it that way. Um, prior to the race in Japan, and again now prior to the race in Mexico City, um, the team principals met at the Mercedes Motorhome and did it without inviting representatives from either the FIA or Liberty Media. Oh, so they were just getting together for some drinks. It was a shot contest with between Toto and Christian Horner. That you know that may have, that that's how they're going to figure out um, prize money. Yes. <laughs> team boss that can they can still be standing after the most shots what we know is that um the teams did discuss um or what we believe that they have discussed is concerns regarding falling f1 audiences which i didn't think we were at this point i thought that recently numbers had started to pick up again could be wrong but i thought since Liberty had taken over, the numbers were starting to trend back up again. I don't know, honestly. Um, but believed to include following F1 audiences, the need to attract new fans, and the balance between controlling costs and distributing following revenues. Yeah. Okay. Now, Otmar Safnauer and several of the team bosses after the meeting in Mexico City, sat down with Channel 4 to discuss, or at least to to give a little more information. Um, Otmar said that, you know, whether it's Bernie or Liberty, there's things we can all improve on, and Liberty can improve as well. We've had discussions about a number of things. In the future, we should have cost caps, better money distribution, and that's all up to Liberty. But first and foremost, we've got to make the show the best we can. We all talk about who the fan is and providing for the fan, and this is a show. It should stick with its roots of ultimate racing, not making it fake, and that's all for the fans. I think one thing Liberty have done well is to have a better understanding of who our fans are. They're data-driven, and hopefully we can, make, we can now make changes to the sport to please our current fans and attract some others. So, and of course, Christian Horner, like he you know, likes to say is, you know, ultimately this is Liberty and, and FIA who need to make the call and, and decide. You know, he's, he's moving away from his think bigger than your own team. Mm-hmm. But he says... Because he would. Yeah. He, Christian says, Formula One's a competition at the end of the day. We all play nicely on the outside, and then we all try to nick each other's sponsors, people, and technology behind the scenes. It's really down to the owners, the guys from Liberty, the regulators, to come up and say, these are the rules. This is what you need to go racing by. And as competitors, it's in our instincts to compete and push those boundaries. Which I think he's right. I mean, and that, that, that's valid. But 
the teams having these meetings a little more often has started to raise the question as to whether or not um, this is an attempt to resurrect the old Formula Teams, Formula One Teams Association, um, which was essentially the um, they want to call it a union. I'm not sure it's really a union, but it was basically the group that the teams had established that ran from 2009 to 2014 to offset the efforts of Bernie Eccleston. Ah. It was the Formula One Teams Association as a unified group that negotiated the Concord Agreement back then. Oh. And it was a collective bargaining. In that case, yeah, I guess it was a union, but a bit of collective bargaining between Formula One Teams Association, the FOTA, as it was called back then, and Bernie to get the Concord Agreement in place. Well, the teams are saying at this point there are no plans to resurrect this and we should not see these meetings as that. They're just talking and having yeah. shots. Yeah. What do you think they're drinking? Jägermeister? Vodka? Well, it, it's the question of, you know, Mercedes being a, a German team. Mm-hmm. So is it German beer? But is it Mercedes hosting it or is it Toto hosting it? Because Toto's, Toto's Austrian. Correct. So could it be German beer or could it be Austrian beer? Is it German food or Austrian food? I mean, they're all Bavarian, so maybe it's more Bavarian. Possibly. <clears throat> but also keep in mind that very many of the people that work on these various teams are British. Well, there's So we that could too. be serving Indian food. <laughs> Took you a some minute. Ni- <laughs> some nice curries there. Yeah. <laughs> Took you a minute, didn't it? <laughs> In other news, and I thought this was appropriate since we're, we're talking about team leadership, uh, word has come out that Nikki Lauda has been released from the hospital more than two months after undergoing his lung transplant. I hear that he is doing very, very well, that he is progressing faster than they expected, and that he is still in recovery. He did call Lewis right before the Mexican Grand Prix to Mm -hmm. wish him luck and have a conversation. And Lewis reported in the press conference that Nikki's sense of humor is back a (laughs) hundred percent and he would they were cracking jokes and it was it was just like old days. And you gotta admit that man has been through a lot in his lifetime. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if we saw Nikki in some fashion at Abu Dhabi this year. I get it's a couple of weeks away and I have to figure out how to transport him, but given his issues mm-hmm. and the fact that Abu Dhabi is a desert and he has expressed support for businesses in Abu Dhabi, yeah, I would not be surprised if they don't try and find a way to get him down there with the idea from a medical perspective of the the drier weather may be beneficial to him and the fact that this is Nicky Lauda and getting him to the track is probably a good thing too. Yeah. Well, and he's always been so well known for if he's got medical issues, the minute he can get cleared, he's at a track. I mean, the man comes back. He came back to drive the year he was burned. Yeah. Well, weeks after he was burned. Yes. I, I Some of his 
you know, it's uh, those things that come out afterwards. And I am sure because we weren't watching, we weren't part of it. I don't think we were alive. Um, but I don't know how much came out at the time. But in the subsequent things, he's talking about taking his helmet off at the end of that first race, he was back. And mm-hmm. I mean, he pulled skin back off again that he knew skin. Yeah. And it's just, you kind of go, Nikki, why? And then you realize that's because that's the dedication that some racers have and they can't not do that. Um, it's an obsession. It's an addiction. It's craziness by every standard. And yet we love it. And that's why we do these things. And, you know, we, for, for as much of a big deal as we make out of Nikki Lauda's and, and, and his recovery, and, and it is, it, it it's the story that we know the best. What we're learning over the course of the season, thanks to some stuff that Formula One is doing and starting to shed some light on some of the history for newer fans, is that they're not the only Formula One drivers who have suffered some incredible injuries through their racing career only to come back and continue racing, see success in racing, and continue to be involved in a motorsport community. Martin Brundle's another one who almost lost a leg and went back out there. Now, was it Martin Brundle or was it the, another one that it was Sid Watkins that told the hospital not to take his leg? That was <clears throat> that was Martin Brundle. Okay. Um, but... You know, there's been Alan McNish, and he had a massive uh, incident that, um, yeah, he thought he had walked through a, a cut through an offense at, at that incident, and the reality was that 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 was the hole in the fence that his car tore in it when it Ooh. went through there. <laughs> Didn't realize that that was the whole thing. There's um, th- there's a lot of the drivers out there who have had some just massive incidents that. They've come back from, and and we don't talk about. And probably because they are not as spectacular um, in their recovery. I mean, you cannot look at Nikki Lauda. There wasn't a movie made about it. Well, there wasn't a movie made about it, but Nikki Lauda's return was sensational news before there was a movie made about it. Yeah. But you can't look at Nikki and not see the scars from that. Mm -hmm. I don't see the scars on Martin Brundle. Yeah. You know that there are scars, but you don't see the scars. You don't see Alan McNish's scars. They're all over Nikki's face. They're all over Nikki's head. Yeah. And so there's a difference from that perspective, but you're right. There have been some spectacular crashes that people have walked away from. And quite frankly, as much as we make a joke about the the passion that Jackie Stewart has had, but it was Jackie Stewart and his compatriots that got us the safety regulations where we know people can walk away from these crashes. Those things have saved lives. And it's unfortunate that Jackie's generation went through so many losses to get us to the point where we could save lives. Yeah. Speaking of proposals to make the cars safer. So the drivers have been complaining and we've seen some penalties around it over the mirrors. Mm-hmm. And the visibility that is or is not afforded to them regarding those mirrors. So the proposal that they put forward at the driver's briefing in Austin was actually to get rid of the mirrors. 
okay, but don't stop there because that makes it sound like, oh, well, they are useless anyway, so let's just get rid of them. Yeah, we no, still can't say. It, it, it's more than that. They actually want to go with, and, and we don't know how this would work, um, and there are some issues that obviously need to be addressed, but they have recommended replacing the mirrors outright with cameras and screens. I like the idea, honestly. Now, there are some three major issues that need to be addressed that the drivers need to, it's not just the drivers, but the FIA need to figure out, and they've looked at this. Um, one is brightness for different weather conditions. Um, obviously, you don't want to blind a driver in the dark and rain and, and changing light conditions, how to, how to adapt to that. Um, how it's packaged, you know, do you put the screens in the cockpit or do you put the screens in normal mirror positions? And then concerns about the drivers having to switch their focus onto screens that potentially lack perspective, unlike traditional mirrors, and, and how that adjustment would work. Yeah, it, it's got some nuances, but I think it's a really good alternative because the issue with the mirrors, because the mirrors weren't an issue last year, remember? Mm -hmm. The issue with the mirrors is because of the halo. Yes, it's 100% the halo right So now. if if they're going to continue to have the halo, you have to come up with an answer to be able to leverage and use the mirrors. And even repositioning the mirrors does not seem to be a viable option. So you're going to have to come up with plan B, and I think this is a nice plan D. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how this develops out. I, think, I don't think this is something that we're going to see prior to 2021, if we even see it in 2021. I don't even think that'll happen, but... Well, we didn't think we'd see the halo so fast. So well, you never there's know. that too. They're going to have to come up with a way that they can see out of their sides. Otherwise, we're going to continue to have some crashes and we're going to continue to have plausible deniability. Well, I couldn't see them. Mm -hmm. And they knew full well where some of these people are. So they have to come up with a way that they can say, no, you could have seen him. So. So while we're talking about crashes and incidents, I'm sure everybody is well aware of the difficult start of the season that Max had. Yes. And crashes and incidents. And Max, who is very insistent that he doesn't need to change his driving style, he, you know, he is doing what he needs to do, and everybody just needs to get off his back. Get out of his way. Get out of his way. Get off his back. And, you know, you're, you're criticizing me for my driving. Why aren't you criticizing Seb for when, when he has an incident? And, you know, threatening to headbutt people. <laughs> One of Max's most mature moments. <laughs> well, after his win in Mexico City, he talked about what has happened since then to bring him to this point. He said, the difference is I just listen to myself. I do my own thing, even if there are a lot of things written. I really don't care. My dad always told me in go-karting back in the day if I was maybe overdriving or something. He would always tell me, Max, even if you think you are not going fast enough, it's still fast enough. So basically, for my feeling, I backed it out a little bit, and that seems to make me a bit faster. So let me translate. I was overdriving the car at the beginning of the season and making mistakes, and I've realized I need to dial it back a little bit, and I'll drive better. Which, interesting, interestingly, isn't that what everybody pretty much said? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. That's that's the thing is he had to stop 
pushing to be faster and push to be more accurate. Yeah. Um, he spoke with F1's official YouTube channel in an interview um, and, and elaborated more. Freely admitted, I think in the beginning of the season, I was always overdriving maybe a little bit. I wanted a result too much, so I just basically slowed down a bit, which made me faster. See? Sometimes slow is fast. Sometimes slow is fast, and no one understands that until you start to see the results of it. And then sometimes, as we discover, slow is just slow. slow. <laughs> In the case of Ferrari and their upgrades, yeah, it didn't. They were not upgrades. According to Sebastian Vettel, <clears throat> the team undid up to four months of development work on that car to return the pace to where it had been. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I don't have much else. I mean, this is the, okay, you, you started going down a path and you didn't, you struggled to realize that the path was bad. Yeah. But I think what's also surprising is, okay, you remove four months of upgrade upgrades on that car and it made the car so much better that it's once again challenging for wins how bad and and we've had four months that the other teams have been developing and upgrading and haven't rolled back yeah how strong was your car really before you ruined it <laughs> that's the thing i mean that's that's you... what you got to ask I mean, had they been able to continue down the trajectory of like where their car was four months ago and making it better with every upgrade as opposed to restricting it with every upgrade, where could that car have been? Mm -hmm. And hopefully they figured out where they took the wrong turn. Well, actually, as a Lewis and Mercedes fan, um, hopefully they never figure out where they made that wrong turn so that they make it again and again and again. Yeah. But that's just being selfish. So while we're talking about upgrades and controversies that just will not go away, the Mercedes rear wheel situation. More Ws. Yes. I told you it's the week of Ws. Um, and, and R's and Ws. That's R's even and worse. Not, as, not easy either. Yeah. Well... The, the FIA consent continues to affirm that the design is legal. That being said, Mercedes hasn't run it the last two races. Do you think that that's affected some of their results? Well, that's what's one of the questions that folks are having is, well, okay, you didn't run that design. You, you ran the old design, and you've been struggling with tires the last two races. Could that be the reasoning for it? Because they did run it in Monza. Right. Could that possibly be the reasoning for it is the fact that they're not running that wheel again? Well, at least for Mexico, especially considering how far off the pace was and how much they were struggling with tires, at least for Mexico, Toto Wolf says, um, no, mm. it, th these are not related. Yes, we're struggling with tires. He thinks that the issue, those are red herring because the biggest problem that they had in Mexico wasn't the rear wheels, but the front left. Okay. Now and that wouldn't be affected by the... Pot potentially, but it also depends on what they're doing for 
brake balance settings and if because they didn't have the airflow that they expected to have in the rear they were changing the brake balance to put it more heavily on the front than they would have otherwise maybe it is i don't know the only rational thought that i have about them not running those rear tires was that they were so close to clinching Lewis's championship that they could not afford him getting disqualified. Well, that that's the thing, is to, to be totally safe and avoid any chance of a rival lodging a, a, a complaint after the race, Mercedes elected not to do it. We do hear that the FIA will probably issue a technical directive ahead of the Brazilian Grand Prix to help clear up the matter and explain why this is considered legal and why they're allowing it. Um, but we're still waiting for some real clarification on that. Which, and, and again, like you said, that's why Mercedes avoided doing it. I think that it'll be very interesting if this technical bulletin comes out and Mercedes goes back to their the wheel. If they have phenomenal pace and can manage the tires better in Brazil, Mm-hmm. I think it will be very, very telling as to whether or not that was a real red herring or not. And keep in mind, Mexico City has other challenges that I didn't hear as much about this year, but it's got an altitude problem. It's really high. Well, that's because the the focus was on Lewis and winning the championship. But yeah, you'll notice if if you really looked at it, um, there's a lot of the, the layout of Mexico City allows for a lot of fast running. There's a lot of long straights that work well. But unlike in Monza, where the wings are almost flat, Mexico City, they run wings that are pretty close to the Monaco spec. Right. They don't, the, the steering isn't the same because they don't need the tight turning that, that you need in Monaco. But in terms of. The, the most possible downforce that they can put on the car, they use that in Mexico City, even though it is technically a high-speed track, specifically because of the altitude issues. And air is thinner, <clears throat> and so you need more downforce to push the right amount of air downward. Right. And, and still cooling is a challenge there. And cooling is a challenge because of all of those other factors. So airflow is a real challenge. So I'm hard hard-pressed to say you know there's like a single thing that because Mexico is such a sort of an outlier but the fact that this was the case in both U.S. Grand Prix and the Mexican Grand Prix I find it interesting in a way in terms of what we saw overall across the field with the tire issues um, and actually we did kind of see it to some extent but I expected it to be more of a Monaco-like race this year Specifically, what we saw in Monaco this year was because the tires were were so fragile, because they were not doing as well, that everybody instantly backed off. And they weren't trying to to drive particularly fast. The pace was down overall, which impacted the racing. What we saw instead, and I think it was more in relation to the lower air pressures and, and, and the, the challenge with the altitude was instead of backing off, the pace was up, but the teams, the, the, the cars themselves backed off in terms of following distance. And, you know, once that race opened up and settled down, nobody really tried to get too close to each other. Right. So, interesting. So while we're talking of 
disqualifications and penalties. We got to go back to Austin again because there were two very notable disqualifications. Yes. Um, both Esteban Ocon and Kevin Magnuson ended up being disqualified after the end of the race due to fuel abnormalities. And by the way, both these disqualifications is why I'm not leading the fantasy GP series right now. So <laughs> this is why, guys. I lost a lot of points off of those two disqualifications. So, and, and two different fuel irregularities that mm-hmm. happened here. Both of them, I think, probably are laid more at the feet of the team oh, yeah. than they are the driver. So Esteban Ocon's. Um, this goes back to something that we saw when we started the turbo hybrid era back in what, 2014, when Daniel Ricardo was disqualified from the first race of the season because of, um, fuel flow. Right. Um, that the, he exceeded the limitation of fuel flow over the course of a race on a per lap basis. And he was disqualified for it. Well, with Esteban, what happened was, and it was on the first lap itself, the overall fuel flow usage through the sensor was in compliance. However, on there was one. a uh, well. It, it, on lap one, the overall amount that, the amount of fuel that was consumed on that lap was in compliance. But at one point, there was a spike in the fuel flow through the sensor that brought it out of compliance. Mm-hmm. So they pulled more fl- more fuel through the sensor in one part of the, ra- the, the lap that exceeded what they were supposed to pull, th- even though the fuel consumption for the lap was where it needed to be. Right. So he was disqualified for that, which is kind of dumb. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't allow for some variations that you would expect to be allowed, but they cannot push extra fuel through even if they average it out by lifting and coasting for another part of the lap. Now, by comparison, Magnuson's issue was cumulative for the race. Right. So while Kevin didn't run out of fuel for the race, he did use more fuel than he was supposed to for the race and as a result was disqualified. Yes. I'm not happy with either of those teams right now. (laughs) I'm just saying... Phil, that's that's those four points. Because I lost a lot of points that weekend. Now, we haven't heard if either team is going to appeal that. I don't think they will. Um, but we also got word about um, Haas's appeal of Roman Grosjean's disqualification in Monza mm-hmm. over the floor. Um, that disqualification was upheld by the FIA appeals court and there had been some talk that possibly since the Mercedes wheels were considered legal that that set a good precedent for the disqualification to be overturned that does not appear to be the case okay so yeah other changes rulings things of that nature um there's been a lot of talk and a lot of experiments going on around some better camera angles specifically camera angles that give a better driver's eye view for the fans around what's happening okay um fernando alonso had requested 
um, to use a specially adapted bell, hel uh, bell helmet fitted with an eye-level camera for the weekend in Austin. Okay. Um, Formula One management turned that request down. Huh, I wonder why. Um, we don't exactly know why. Um, they may try it a little more later on. There may be some more experimenting, uh, but FOM said that they were not ready to allow this technology yet. Okay. Um, what they had been experimenting with, and we'd seen it pop out a couple of times, is a glasses-mounted camera that the drivers wore in their helmet, a pair of glasses. And we've seen a couple of pictures. Roman Grosjean and some others have sported the glasses. Um, they're not particularly attractive looking, but the good news is that it's under their helmet. Um, they have dropped that idea as well. I heard um, it was ridiculously uncomfortable. That that was one of the big things is that it doesn't fit well under the padding. It, it, it's uh, bulky. They were painful. So they, they've dropped that as well. They still want to find a solution here. It may be that uh, the helmet that Fernando wants to try is it. Um Apparently, they're not interested in the helmet-mounted camera that IndyCar has played with this past year. Um, the IndyCar helmet is a bit bulkier, mm -hmm. so as a result, they're, they're not really keen on that idea either. Um, that's a camera that's mounted on the top of the helmet, and that may also be an issue because it probably puts it at about the level of the halo. Uh, that would be my concern. Yeah. <laughs> so that's not happening either. Um the headline, I think, of this story on Autosport was very misleading. So Autosport put out a headline that says, Fernando Alonso and Jimmy Johnson to do F1 NASCAR swap. And okay. I went, what? Wait, so, so now Jimmy's going to come to F1 and Fernando's going to drive? No, that, that, that's not what's happening. Here. Okay, what's actually happening? So what's actually happening is that um, – the day after the season finale in, in Abu Dhabi, and I'm assuming this is going to be done somehow to deconflict with uh, the traditional postseason testing that's going to happen in Abu Dhabi, also after the season finale. Uh, but there will be a special event held where um, Fernando will get to drive Jimmy Johnson's NASCAR race car on the track in Abu Dhabi. Okay. So that's going to put him at a full disadvantage there because, you know, he's in a car for ovals. Right. But Jimmy is going to drive Fernando's Formula One car on the track as well. It goes a bit deeper than that, though. Okay. Because it's not just a matter of that Fernando will be driving Jimmy's car and Jimmy will be driving Fernando's car, but their pit crews are coming with the deal as well. So Fernando's crew will be servicing Jimmy's nascar car for fernando and jimmy's nascar pit crew will be servicing fernando's car interesting including the the, the crews uh spending some time in the various teams factories to learn, learn the details how to do it yeah so one of jimmy johnson's chevy nascar cars is actually already en route to abu dhabi being transported via sea freight so it is there in time for this. Oh, my. Yeah. They couldn't airlift it over like they do a Formula One car? Um, I think there was no rush. Okay. And keep, keep, I mean, keep in mind, NASCAR season 
they probably don't need the car. I mean, I'm assuming this is a car that's set up for, for road tracks. I would hope so. And I, there's no, like, you get one car through the whole season. I think they've got multiple. So they, they probably didn't need this car for the rest of the season. Okay. And could get away with doing it. All righty. Yeah. Got a little, like, you know, shipper label on its hood. And <laughs> yeah, it's it's the, the FedEx label, and, yeah, there, there's all of that stuff. I hope they're getting good regular barcode check-ins on it. <laughs> well, it, it, it's on the ship. So once it gets on the ship, you had your, your, your departure your scan. scan. Now you got to wait for your arrival scan. Right. It's when they have to check the page and it says waiting to clear customs. That That's where it gets a little dicey. Yep. Return to sender, address unknown. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Daniel Ricardo, unsurprisingly, is a bit upset. Honey Badger is not a happy camper right now. Yeah. You, that well, whole Honey Badger don't care thing, Honey Badger cares. <laughs> well, you know, when you end up in poll... For the first time since Monaco. Mm-hmm. And you have an incredible run on the car and then have it blow up on you again. Yeah. I think that's like his eighth DNF due to mechanical reasons this season. Yeah. He's like I mean, a, it's, it's 50%. been brutal. So he's really upset, apparently, to the point that he told Australian TV crews immediately after the race that his car was cursed and mentioned that he would be happy to hand it over to Pierre Gasly for the remainder of the season. Nice. And that he didn't see a point in even bothering to continue to turn up at the track for the rest of the season. Wow. So that, of course, sent some folks buzzing that maybe Daniel was going to walk away and he was done with Red Bull and and this is it, everything's gone well, he came back this week and said that, yeah, he was really frustrated. He was really upset. But, no, he's going to drive the Red Bull in Brazil, and he'll drive it in Abu Dhabi. And, but it's been hard. And, yeah. His, his statement was, I just wanted to firstly address a few things from Mexico. First one's first. I will be doing the last two races. That's what I'm about. I'm not about that other life. It's been obviously massive highs and lows this year, more lows, unfortunately. It's been frustrating. I won't lie. I look to myself and all the guys who work their butts off to give it two more cracks before we see each other off. So I will be there. I just need a few days off, really. It feels good. (laughs) Poor guy. Yeah. But I I will say this. For all the questioning that we have given Daniel about his decision to move to Renault, their performance this weekend with Max's car mm-hmm. kind of makes you that that kind of justifies the decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Max is obviously showing that if the engine is reliable, they figured something out. Yeah, and if they can, admittedly, Carlos and and, and Nico Hulkenberg are not doing as great with that car. But some of that is car design. If they can figure out the car design, mm-hmm. they may have something. Now, what is worth being a little alarmed about is that they have already said that this spec C engine that they're running that seems to be working with, they're ditching next year. Oh, my. So, yeah. We'll see. 
like this is one of those decisions that will only get made in hindsight yeah i mean i don't think you know we we question lewis from walking away from mclaren and admittedly as foolish as we thought it was it was inspired it, it it was brilliant not the least of which is because I don't think anybody saw, thought that McLaren was going to change their, their front suspension and totally hash it up mm-hmm. and just start a downward spiral at that point. Yeah. And, you know, and we also, I don't think that you could say we knew Fernando going from Ferrari to McLaren was a bad move. We knew that. Yeah. But we, I don't think we even predicted how bad of a move that was. You, you know, Lewis this week, and I wasn't planning on talking about it, but you brought it up. Lewis in Mexico City commented on Fernando and Fernando's mistakes. Mm. And he specifically, and and he harkens back to that move itself, uh, specifically said that, you know, that he felt that Fernando's mistake back then was that he felt that he owned the driver's market. That he... Because he was Fernando Alonso and he had the reputation that he had and he was frustrated with Ferrari that he could walk away from Ferrari and just walk into a top-tier team and assumed that by doing that, he would be able to walk into a Mercedes that there would that Red Bull would consider welcoming him in or something along those lines if he said, that's it, I'm done with Ferrari. And he went and tried it. And, of course, there was nowhere for him to go over at Mercedes because they had no interest in dropping Nico Rosberg at that point. When he turned around and announced he was leaving, Sebastian immediately stepped in and snapped up the Ferrari seat and shut the door behind him. Mm -hmm. And Red Bull's response was, we like young drivers, and that's the direction that we want to go. And closed that door, and then he found himself completely at a loss. Yeah. Now, admittedly, I'm not 100% sure that Fernando could have seen the Red Bull move going the way it did. I mean, they had Mark Webber, Mm -hmm. who was not a development driver, who had been there for a long time. They had had, alongside Mark Webber, for the longest time, David Cothard. It was only when David Cothard left that they brought up their first young driver. Right. So I think you could forgive Fernando for thinking that Red Bull would consider him if he was on the market and not just go, we stick with our young drivers. At that point, they didn't have that history. Now, however, if somebody tried to play that game, like supposedly Fernando tried to do this year, I could see, yeah, the instant response of, that's really kind of stupid. Of course, they're going to go this route. Yeah, I, I I see I see it there, and I see Lewis's point. I think there's a lot of bravado that Fernando has that he could just he could oust other people because they'd want him just because he was Fernando. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's so emotional, and he does not have the best reputation of working well with his team and his teammate. You so, know, I mean, the and, and Lewis-Fernando combination at McLaren that year was horrendous. But we also predicted that Fernando was going to have a big falling out with McLaren. 
mm-hmm. and he really hasn't. You know, we expected him and Ron Dennis, given the history, to tear each other apart at some point. Well, yeah, that and they got did by Ron leaving. Yeah, but we didn't hear that it was directly because of Fernando, and we didn't hear the two of them slagging each other in public. No, I think that Ron left before there could be slagging because that was that first year and things hadn't gone completely off the rails. And and Ron was shooting himself in his own foot. Yeah. So moving on. There was a really big close call for Williams in the pits at Mexico City. Yeah. Well, as a result of a member of the Williams crew getting knocked to the ground when Lance strolled apart his pit stall, his pit stall after his second pit stop in Mexico City, the team has been fined 25,000 euros for, quote, endangering its pit crew with an wow. unsafe release. Wow. So we don't have the, the full details as to what happened there. It wasn't clear to me from watching the video that we saw whether or not the the mechanic was hit or he just fell yeah because it looked to me like he just fell but who knows yeah um actually um according to the statement from the stewards and i missed this the stewards determined that the entire pit stop was complete and the mechanic being struck was as a result of minor miscoordination at the conclusion of the pit stop sequence okay so he was hit now by comparison Ferrari had been fined 50,000 euros for their uh, incident at Bahrain. When Kimi drove over the guy's leg? Right. And and that's the reasoning there is because, the, according to the marshals, there was an injury in Bahrain. This didn't lead to an injury, so it was less severe, but it was still enough that they deserved to be penalized for it. That makes some sense. In other news, Vietnamese Grand Prix, according to a local Vietnamese— government, um, actually particularly the Hanoi People's Committee, they say that there will be a Vietnamese Grand Prix in 2020 in Hanoi. Okay. We have not gotten confirmation from the FIA, but the Vietnamese are saying it's a go. Okay. Over to IndyCar. Yes. So Robert Wickens caused a little bit of confusion. Okay. So initially... Uh, word came out that, um, based on a video that Robert put on Instagram, uh, he put out and said that he's a paraplegic now. Um, he did, the video came out and said that he did his first slide transfer as a paraplegic today. Uh, upper body is getting stronger and stronger, and hopefully I'll be able to do it unassisted soon. I've only been posting videos of the small movement in my legs, but the reality is that I am far away from walking on my own. Okay. Um, so he went on a bit further because after this, everyone's like, oh, Robert's paralyzed. He's, yeah, th- this is it. He's done. Um, he made a clarification a bit further as to where things stand and, and what the situation is. Um, he says, there seems to be con- confusion about the word paraplegic. Really means while, inf- um, actually, I'm sorry, wrong paragraph. He said, there was no announcement to confirm I was paralyzed. I'd been paralyzed the moment I hit the fence pole in Pocono. We were very clear that I had a spinal cord injury in the press release issued by Schmidt-Peterson Racing. 
but I guess people are not aware of what that means and are just speculating. Paralyzed and paraplegic are paralysis from the level of injury on the lower half. I'm paralyzed from the chest down. People may be paraplegics forever. Since my spinal cord was incomplete, the nerves may be able to find a way back to my legs. Incomplete means the spinal cord was not severed, it was only bruised. In months' time, the swelling will go down and we will learn more on how much nerve regeneration happens. The, driver, the doctors have told us every spinal cord injury is different. Two people with the same injury may heal differently. One may walk again and one may not. Each body heals differently. So we cannot tell you a definitive answer if I will walk again, but I have full intentions of doing just that. The good news is I already have most feeling and some movement back in my legs, so there is hope over the course of 24 months that I may regain enough movement to walk again. So far, the signs are promising, but I'm trying not to get ahead of myself. I'm just trying to keep my head down and working until my therapists and doctors tell me to stop. Okay. So, I mean, I think that I got to give him credit for trying to educate people because Mm -hmm. there is so much misinformation or uncertainty about what some of those words really mean. Yeah. And... I think that that's awesome that he's trying to encourage people to kind of know really what we're talking about here. But more so, I think it's important that he's he's identifying the fact that he has got 24 months of watching and working just to try to get to walking ahead of him. And in that time, he is a paraplegic. Yeah. And... It doesn't mean that it's a permanent condition, but right now he's also got to figure out how to function in his day-to-day life when he can't walk. The other thing of note here, and it's it's not addressed as part of this statement, but Schmidt-Peterson Motorsport is um, retaining their interest in Robert. Okay. Um, they are not ruling out a if he recovers enough they are not ruling out a potential return for robert with the team okay however as we heard in the statement it's going to be a good 24 months of recovery easily somebody needs to be driving next to him somebody or or in place of him somebody needs to be partnered with james hinchcliffe full-time right for for the near future well we already know that the flying waffle will not be unstoppable in IndyCar. Correct. Instead, it's going to be the flying Swede, Marcus Erickson. So we will have a new F1 driver to stock at. Mid-Ohio. We will be. Yeah. I like Marcus Erickson. He's been on my fantasy team for the entire year, <laughs> and he's slightly adorable. So it also works. So, yeah, we, uh, Marcus Erickson will be shifting over to IndyCar with the loss of his seat over at Sauber. However, he will retain a role with Sauber as a test driver. Correct. Um, also this week, um, Tatiana Calderon uh, took a te- got the opportunity to test drive um, a Sauber in the Young Driver program as part of uh, 
the rewards from one of the series that she's in. Okay. She actually, first off, from what I hear, is the, the reception in terms of her times and her performance has been extremely positive. But the other interesting thing that came out of it is she said that she thought that um, driving that car, and she drove it at Silverstone, was less demanding than her F2 car. Really? Physically demanding. Less physically demanding. Interesting. Yeah. For the first time ever, IndyCars have run it, uh, Circuit of the Americas. Yes. So it was a Firestone tire test um, run by Alexander Rossi and Tono, Tony Kanan, along with a, quote, unnamed Carlin driver. I wonder why they didn't name him. <clears throat> I don't know. So the unnamed Carlin, I, I'm wondering if, if he was in a Carlin jumpsuit and, and he, he wore a paper bag over his head until the, he put his helmet on. Something like that. Like nobody um, can know who that is. Yeah. We, we don't have a whole lot of details, although Alexander Rossi did talk about the test. Uh, he did do 90 laps on the day, tested a variety of tire compounds as well as turbo boost loads. Um, he didn't see Tony. He, the times weren't released. They don't know how he did compared to any of the other cars. It was specifically a tire test program, but he said the track is fantastic. Driving it in an Indy car does not at all compare to his two previous experiences driving the track in a Formula One car. Uh, when he drove the Marussia, apparently it was raining, um, and the other, well, it, it was a Gator. Or excuse me, he drove the Caterham, it was raining, and when he drove the Marusha, it was, well, a Marusha. So. <laughs> but he said that it's fantastic cool. and can't wait. And in our last bit of news, word came out this week that a municipal government is pushing to get IndyCar to return. They want to bring back the Gold Coast Circuit. Gold Coast Circuit? The Gold Coast Circuit is located in Surfer's Paradise. Okay. Where might you think that Surfer's Paradise is? Now, some folks, I'm sure, know this answer, but, yeah, I'm putting you on the spot for this. Where do you think that Surfer's Paradise actually is? Well, here's the thing. You mm -hmm. would think that's probably in California, mm -hmm. but I happen to know that the Gold Coast is one of the names of the beach areas in Florida. And you would be wrong there as well. No. Queensland, Australia. Okay. That's right. Queensland, Australia is trying to get IndyCar to return Okay. Yeah. Um, they want to have they're, – they're, they're targeting a February date maybe ch as soon as 2020 to get them to come back. Now, they've, they've uh, also approached other American series, um, not just the supercar series, which actually I thought was Australian, but I guess there's a supercar series in the U.S., but more than that – they want NASCAR to come down and run a demonstration race over the Gold Coast 500 weekend as soon as next year. 
Surfers Paradise staged a kart race for the first time in 1991 and was a staple of the kart champ car schedule until 2007. Okay. Yeah. So there was a non-points race that happened after Champ Car and the Indy Racing League series merged in 2008. Okay. So it's not fully unprecedented, but they want them back. Um, This wouldn't be the exact same layout that they used in the past. Apparently there was a light rail system that was built over parts of the track that's no longer used, which is a good thing because... As we have seen, Indy cars can tear up streets. Yeah. So I, I can't imagine having to drive an Indy car over a rail line. <laughs> no, that would probably be bad. But I think this could be really, really cool if IndyCar went down to Australia. It would be nice for them to be more international than just Toronto. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm surprised that there hasn't been any real movement yet to get IndyCar down at the circuit Hermanos Rodriguez. You do love saying that. I know, and I've only done it once this whole show. I know. <laughs> I know. On that note, should we call it a show? It's a show. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. A little break? 